Good morning. It's great to be uh, to be with y'all. Um, to know that there are like-minded churches uh, that I didn't even know about, and then to learn about one, and uh, that's in Eastern Oklahoma, and to be invited to come speak with you, that's just a great blessing uh, to me and to my family, and, and really to our church. To know that God has uh, like-minded people just scattered throughout different places, the work that He is doing in uh, bringing back the supremacy of Christ in our churches and love for expository preaching and meaningful church membership. Hearing all these things, it's a, it's a great encouragement. This morning, um, I want to to bring to you a word from the Lord from John chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, please turn to John chapter 10. I'll read that text here in just a minute. Um, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. I'll read all the way through verse 21. The focus of our preaching portion will be verses 17 through 18, but I want to read the entire passage so you can get the context of what's going on. And I want to bring to you from verses 17 and 18 a, a sermon I've entitled Cosmic Crucifixion. Cosmic Crucifixion. We'll see the, the grandeur and the bigness of the gospel in these texts. The, the gospel from God's perspective, the, the crucifixion of Christ from God's perspective. It's an incredible passage. I hope that you leave here having a bigger view of Christ and an appreciation for who he is and really of the Trinity than, than when you came in. So let's pray. Um, and then after, after I pray, I want to ask you to stand and I'll, and I'll read God's word. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we, just, we thank you that you have called your people out from all different backgrounds, um, from all parts of Oklahoma and even the world, and you're gathering them together in churches. And God, thank you for just a little, a little taste that we get uh, to be part of not just our local church, but part of the bigger church that you have, God, your, your church universal. And God, what a, what a blessing it is to me and my family. Lord, I pray for, for boldness to proclaim your word clearly and urgently. Lord, I pray that I would only speak what is true to your word and that your people that are here today, God, that, that, that they would be challenged and blessed, encouraged, that they would be built up through your word, that they would leave different than they came here. Lord, I also pray for any that may, may not know you, may not have a real relationship with you. Lord, there may be many here who know many things about Jesus, but they, they don't know him, not in a saving way. Lord, I pray that today that this text would awaken their, their dead hearts, that the Spirit would, would work through your word, granting them repentance, leading to eternal life. Father, you've been so good to us. Now as we worship you, we pray that the preaching and the listening to preaching would be a blessing to you as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please stand, if you would, as I begin to read from John 10. Just just a little bit of, of information before I begin to read so you know what Jesus is saying. Jesus is, in John 10, he's going to launch into a a pretty extended word picture which changes, shifts its focus a couple of times, but the general picture is that of a shepherd and his sheep. Jesus speaks these words following the hills of John chapter 9. Now, these are directly connected to what happens in John chapter 9. And in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who's been blind from birth. He's never seen not a, day, not a day in his life. He has no idea. You can't explain to this man what it's like to see because he's never seen anything. Jesus, passing by, sees this man, and he heals this man. Now, these miracles, these signs in John's gospel, they, they are uh, carefully chosen. John has written his gospel. He tells you at the end why he's written. He said, Jesus did many other signs that are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you might believe so these miracles are meant to reveal to you something about Jesus for the purpose that you would then believe in who he is. Following from these sign miracles, like the man born blind, there's usually a long teaching of Jesus or a monologue or a dialogue. And that's what we have in chapter 9 and 10. He heals the man born blind on the Sabbath day, which 
violated the extra-biblical laws and rules that the Pharisees had put in place. This sparked an investigation. Instead of celebrating this man in his healing and praising God, they begin to investigate the miracle, these religious leaders. They grill the man. They, they aren't satisfied with their answer, so they, they question the man's parents. They're still not satisfied. They go back to the man again. And it ends with them excommunicating the man from the synagogue, which is it's, it's like the end of his life. So this is the best day of this man's life. He receives his sight, and it's the worst day of his life. Coming off of that, Jesus finds this man. Jesus seeks him, a picture of, of God seeking the sinner. And he finds this man who had, he had healed, and he reveals to, to him fully that he's the Messiah, the man worships Jesus. Then the blind, the blind man is revealed as the one who actually sees and then the Pharisees are there, and Jesus addresses them directly and exposes them as blind. So they can see, but they're spiritually blind. They can't see what's happening right in front of them. Then Jesus launches into this, what I'm about to read to you, as a direct one, a direct indictment against these false leaders of the Jews. They think they're shepherds of Israel, but also to reveal who he is. So let's read this text now. John 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and he's insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? It's the word of the Lord. You may, you may be seated. We'll focus on verses 17 and 18 and what can only be called the cosmic crucifixion. In the beginning, in the beginning, those are the first words of the Bible. In the beginning. Now, these words, these first words of our Bible... They tell us really what the, what the entire book of the Bible is about from cover to cover. It's not a book primarily about man. It's not a book primarily about us. Man, we're just a supporting character. That, at best, that's what we are. The main character of this book from cover to cover is God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, that tells us when you hear that statement in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. It's a statement saying God created everything that ever existed. He created time, space, matter, energy, 
galaxies, the whole universe. And if we ever discover the multiverse theory is true, he created all of the multiverse. In the beginning, before time and space matter, there was only God, who we know as eternally existed as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God and three persons. The heavens and the earth, all that there is, that's the setting. That's the setting about the story about God. The, the drama of God and his shepherd. His shepherd who will die and lay down his life for the sheep. This is the greatest drama that has ever been told. Indeed, it is the story from which all other dramas and stories that people love. Shakespeare, any good book, any good movie, they've all stolen themes from this great story. The story of the shepherd who loves his sheep and lays down his life. For his sheep. So when God creates the heavens and the earth, he creates the realm for which this drama will unfold. The, the realm by which Jesus will, the eternal word will become a man, take on human flesh. That he will lay down his life. He will die on a cross, be buried, be put in a tomb. And then the crescendo of all of this, of all the universe, is the resurrection of Christ from the dead, conquering our, our enemy. It's the greatest drama that's ever been told. And it was all created for this reason. That this good shepherd would have a setting by which he would come. And he would demonstrate the greatest drama that's ever been told. And so this sermon, I think, can only rightly be called Cosmic Crucifixion. Jesus, in this passage, in just verses 17 and 18, is giving us a divine perspective on his death, burial, and resurrection, on the crucifixion of Jesus. He's giving us the divine perspective. He's already really given his own perspective on his death when he said, he's, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He tells you his own perspective in verses 11 through 16. So he tells you he's going to lay down his life for his sheep, that he loves his sheep. And the only way to describe the love he has for his sheep, how, how much he knows them, is that you, the only way you can compare it is, is the eternal love he's had with his father from eternity past. And then he tells you the good shepherd, he will gather all his sheep, where he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. But here in this passage today, we get something I think that's even maybe more special than that. We get Jesus telling you not just what he thinks about his death, but he tells you you get to peer behind the veil into the divine mind of God. And you get to see what is the crucifixion, Jesus life, his incarnation, his death, his resurrection. What does God think about that? What does God think about this? We get the plan of redemption from God's perspective. Now, today, as we move through the text, I want to give you three maybe shelves to mentally follow and hang your, your focus on. So first, we'll see the directive of the Father. Then we'll see the delight of the Father. And then we'll see the dominion of the Son. The directive of the Father, the delight of the Father, and the dominion of the Son. It's my purpose today that, that you would leave here, that this would catch you up into, you would be compelled by what you hear here today to worship. I think it's the greatest gift God could ever give to his creation is to, is to allow them to be caught up in worship that he accepts. If you're here and, and you've been a Christian a long time or you've grown up in Oklahoma, you've probably heard the gospel a million times. I, I'm hoping today that when you leave here, you say, I, I'm in love with the gospel again, like I haven't been in a while. Because you're going to see the gospel, hopefully from an angle maybe you haven't thought about. If you have, maybe you haven't thought about it like this in a long time. I pray for you today that if you are struggling, that this text would give you really unshakable security. Security that you can rest in Christ be satisfied in him. Knowing that he never casts away his sheep. He holds them secure eternally. And it's because of this great plan that he has. And if you're here today, maybe you're not a Christian. I'm hoping that you will, you will hear the truth of the gospel, of the great links that God has gone, has gone to. That he's gone to secure salvation for sinners. And that this story of the gospel would, would penetrate 
through your mind and into your heart and and that you would run to Christ for salvation today. So let's look at the divine or the divine directive of the Father, the delight of the Father in the dominion of the Son. First, let's look at the directive of the Father. Now I want to I want to begin with a phrase that I believe shapes this passage. And so instead of beginning in 17, we'll begin in verse 18. And that phrase comes at the end of verse 18, where Jesus says, And this charge I have received from my Father. It's really how we are to understand all of John 10, really all of Jesus' ministry. And this charge I have received from my Father. So much is packed into this little phrase. There's so much packed into these nine English words. Well, what is a charge? When he says, this charge I have received from my Father, what does that mean? Well, you can think of it as a command. This command I have received from my Father. Now, where where our church is, is um, Lawton, Oklahoma. Fort Sill is the Army community that's there. It's the home of the field artillery. All artillerymen that learn how to shoot cannons, artillery is big cannons, right? Surface to surface, big big cannons. They all train there. Every one of them that's ever served goes to Fort Sill. And there they learn and they train. And that's what I used to do when I was in the Army. I was an artilleryman. Now, we know in that community, and you probably do too, just from reading books or watching about the military, when you receive a charge or a command, it must be executed. And it will be executed. So, for instance, they may tell you, hey, there's a a certain bridge here. And the enemy will be coming by at this certain time. We need you to take that bridge out with the artillery before they come, and then they can't, they can't cross. And so someone in the military will never go, mm, I don't know if that's such a great plan. I've got a better plan, or maybe 3 o'clock's better. They don't do that. They just say, okay, I've got the divine charge, or it really is divine in the military. I've got the charge. I'm going to execute the command. And that's what's happening in this passage. Jesus clearly says, I have a command given to me by my Father. What's the command? That he lay down his life for his sheep. All that he spoke of when he gave this word picture of the the good shepherd, the true shepherd of Israel, is all wrapped up in this divine command. So there, Jesus is a shepherd who will die for his sheep. He's an open door who tells, it calls all to come through him like a door so they might find salvation. He, He calls to his sheep. They answer the call. They follow him. And this divine charge he's received from his father. All of this was a divine directive. Now, the Trinitarian theology is emerging from this text, right? Uh, John's gospel is, is uh, it's peculiar not only because it tells us explicitly at the end the purpose, but the beginning of John's gospel is different than the other gospels. The, this gospel story of Jesus' life doesn't begin at his birth, it doesn't begin at his baptism, like, like Mark's. John begins in the beginning. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like Genesis, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's with God, and He is God, and so the Trinitarian theology emerges at the beginning, and then he tells us the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. That's telling me, he's telling me to ratchet up. More. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation of Christ. And, and then the prologue of John's gospel even tells you that his purpose is to reveal the Father. No one has ever seen God. The only God, that's Christ, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. John's gospel is incredibly Trinitarian. And so we see it emerging here in our text again, this Trinitarian theology. The Father's the one who sends Jesus. He sends a Redeemer. Jesus, the eternal Word, becomes flesh and dwells among us, obeying the charge that he's received from his Father. He's the sent one from God. That's the major theme of John's gospel. And what's incredible about this is at the end of uh, of chapter 9 in 933, this man who's born blind, who doesn't know any theology whatsoever. He's definitely not trained like the Pharisees. 
He's just been a beggar his whole life. He sees Jesus for who he is. It's incredible what, what, what John is doing. He's telling you, it's so clear a blind man can see who Jesus is. Since the beginning of the world, he tells these He's given him a theology lesson, these teachers, this blind man. He says, since the beginning of the world, no one's ever healed a man born blind. It's obvious he's sent. If this man were not sent from God, he could not do these things that he's doing. And they say, oh, would you, would you presume to teach us? He is teaching them. So clear, a blind man can see it, but the self-righteous seeing are blind to what's happening. Because they're blinded by their self-righteousness. He is the sent one from God. In John's gospel, there's at least six explicit references to Jesus as a sent one from the Father, and they all give us a little bit more of the flavor of what is meant by Jesus being sent from the Father or why he is. I want to take you through these. So John three sixteen through 17, you probably know John three sixteen, right? You've seen it, uh, probably held up at football games. You've, it's on paintings, it's everywhere. Everybody loves John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Okay, very important. Verse 17 is very important. It tells you why, in a negative way, why did God send his Son? He didn't send him to condemn, but to save. It's very important that we understand this. When Jesus came into this world, the world he's coming into is a world already lost in sin and rebellion against our creator. Now, anyone, I think, that will take an honest look at the world and see all that we've done to it understands that we have totally ruined our world. And our rebellion against God, we then act out in sin against our brother and sister, all humanity. We've ruined The world in sin. So when Jesus comes to this world, he doesn't come to a a good place. He comes to a world already condemned. He comes into a condemned world that the wrath of God is against, not for the purpose of to condemn, but for the purpose to save, to save people out of that darkness and pull them into light. And then in John 5, 36, Jesus says this, but the testimony I have is greater than that of John. He's referring to John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, those are, those are his preaching, his teaching, and the signs. The very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. You see what he's saying? He's saying, these signs that I'm doing that no one's ever done in the history of the world, they're, they're revelation from the Father to you. So that you would know that he sent me. And then in John six twenty nine, Jesus says. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Now, that's a crucial passage. John six twenty nine. you have people, thousands coming to Jesus at this point, massive crowds. Here's what they want to know. What must we do to have eternal life? What's the work? What work? What system are you bringing us? Something like the Pharisees? Perhaps they're teaching plus a little? What work must we do to please God? What does he say? There's no work at all, is it? Believe in him who he has sent. Clear statement of salvation by faith, by belief. Safe in, salvation is found in belief in the sent one from God, Jesus Christ. And then in John eight forty two, Jesus said to them, if God were your father. Now, this is this is how the world is now divided. Jesus enters into the world and the world is divided because of Jesus has come into the world into two groups. He says, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So when Christ comes in, in his context, how people respond shows who they are. Are they, Christ, are they his sheep, who he's come to save? Or are they not his sheep? Do they belong to someone, someone else? 
that all depends on how they respond to him. Do they respond to him as the sent one from God whom they believe and trust in? Or do they reject him? And then in John 17, 3 through 4, what is it to have eternal life? This answers the question. It's very clear. Is eternal life a place we go to and have all of the great things of this world minus none of the pains of this world? So think of the greatest things you enjoy in this life. Are they all there for all eternity? You can zip around the universe. Perhaps you can fly around, explore. Maybe you can create and make music and make art, make buildings if you're an engineer. You can do that for all eternity. And there's no pain. There's no sickness and death. Is that eternal life? Well, it's very clear that that place for a Christian, if it did not have Jesus Christ and it did not have the Father, would be an eternal hell. John 17, 3-4, here's how Jesus explains eternal life. This is eternal life. It's something you can have now that they know you the only true God. There's only one God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that's eternal life. Eternal life is open right now for everyone here today. Eternal life is found in knowing God through Jesus Christ. And it's not something to attain for. It's something that's available now. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone comes through me, he will go in and out and find pasture. And they'll go in now. Isn't that good news? He's the sent one from God, sent not to condemn, sent to save. That anyone can be saved if they'll come to him by faith, believing that he is in fact sent from God, sent to lay down his life for the sheep. The story of John is shaped like a U. Okay, so in your mind, if you want to know what the Gospel of John is about, the whole Gospel of John, here it goes for you. It's a gigantic U. It doesn't begin here at the bottom of the U when Jesus is born or when he starts his ministry. It starts back here in eternity past. It starts back here in eternal, eternity past. The eternal word who has existed before time and space itself, it, itself existed, existed in eternal love and joy with his father. He comes into this world, this broken and dark world. He's born. He's true man. He is in every way a man. Just like you are a man, except for without sin. He comes into this world, and where he's going back to is the glory he had with his father before he created the world. The eternal glory and joy and love they experienced, he's going back there. But to go back there, he must go back and be lifted up. And the place of his glorification in John, where Christ is glorified, is also the place of his shame. It's a Roman cross. That's the the mystery of the gospel. The place of Christ's shame is also the place of his glory, the place that he ascends back to the Father. In John 12, 23 through 25, the Greeks begin to seek after Jesus, the nations. And that's what cues this for Jesus to say this. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. His way back to glorification is through the public shame and humiliation of the cross. And this is the U-shape of John. From eternity past to eternity future to his glory comes through an incarnation and a Roman cross. This is the divine directive. This is the charge. He's the sent one from the Father with a charge. Lay down your life for the sheep. Now, a question arises. When did he receive this charge? When did he receive this charge? It's a question that we have to ask. Did he receive the charge when God saw that a man named Jesus was living a perfectly obedient life and God adopted that man, Jesus, and gave him his spirit? It's an old heresy known as adoptionism. Some word of faith preachers would propose such a preposterous thing. No, Jesus did not receive his charge sometime during his life. He received this charge before 
he ever came to this world. And how do we know that? We know it from many verses. I want to give you some of them. Ephesians 1, 3 through 7. How does it speak about the Christian salvation? In Ephesians 1, 3 through 7, it says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All blessings for all eternity, all, all the joys and rights of Christ have been given to the Christian. When did he give them to the Christian? Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God had chosen to set his love on a people that he would lavish all the blessings of Christ upon. It's, a, it's amazing to think of this. Second Timothy 1, 8 through 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works. God does not accept you because of your works. Your best works are nothing to a holy God. That's not why God saved any of us. This is why. But because of his own purpose of grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. These are the sheep spoken of in John 10. Jesus says in John 6, if you turn back over there, he says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. When were they given? Were they given at some time in your life when God said, Oh, you've met this righteous criteria. I'm now going to backwards give you to the Son. No, absolutely not. Before the ages began, God decided, if you're a Christian here today, to set his love upon you in Christ Jesus You are one of those that Jesus says, all the Father gives to me will come to me. You're one of these in John 10, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they will follow me. And then he says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Before time and space begin, he'd been given this charge. You go to Revelation 17. You go to Revelation 13. And what do you see combining these passages? At the end of time, there arises... And many antichrists have come, but there will arise one great world leader that will deceive the nations. Everyone on the face of the earth will worship this person, except for who? What's the distinguishing factor? People that are really smart, that can see through him and aren't gullible? No. The only people that will not fall into this system and worship this beast are those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Before time and space ever existed, the Father gave a people to the Son, and He said, these are your people. Will you go and die for them? And the Son said, I will willingly go and die for these people. I will die for them with joy. And together, they created In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the tapestry upon which this great drama would unfold. The drama of the shepherd who will lay down his life for his sheep. The shepherd who will obey the charge given to him by the Father. The charge he received before the foundation of the world. Well, this is the divine directive. That's the divine directive of the Father. This charge I receive from my Father. Now let's see the delight of the Father. Now I want you to go back in your passage. For this reason, the Father loves me. You see that? Verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now what you should not do when you read this passage is think, there was a time when the Father really didn't love Jesus, and Jesus proved his obedience to the Father. And so then the Father said, oh, I love, I love Jesus because of what he's done. He has just performed some type of work that's acceptable to me, and therefore now I love him. And we know this can't be the case because of John seventeen twenty four. And John seventeen twenty four tells us uh, this. Jesus says he's praying for his people in the Jesus' high priestly prayer. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, sounds like that's a repeated theme in John's gospel, may be with me where I am, 
to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what's going on in this passage? The father's loved the son from eternity past. What's going on here where Jesus says this, for this reason the father loves me? Well, I think there's a lot, and I think it teaches us a lot of important theology about who Jesus is as one who is truly a man. God has always desired to live with mankind in a perfect covenant relationship, okay? Now, a little backdrop to the story of all things of creation. Our Bible tells us that God created uh, mankind in his image and in his likeness, and that would be Adam and his wife Eve. And the first man, Adam, represented all people of the earth that would flow out of him. He is the first covenant head, if you will, of all of the human race. What Adam does flows to all of his people. That's all of us. What God created Adam for was to live in fellowship and relationship with God and to obey God and to exercise dominion over the whole world for God on God's behalf and enjoy God forever. To enjoy God for all eternity. But the first Adam... Born into a perfect world free from sin, plunged the world into sin and despair by unbelief. Jesus is presented as the second Adam. He's a true man, right? God, the eternal word made flesh, does not mean that God uh, says, I need to live in the created world. I need a suit. I need a suit car. So I'm going to I'm going to put my divine mind into a flesh suit And I'm going to drive around this flesh suit like a robot. That is not who Jesus is. Jesus is in every way truly God and truly man. This is one of the parts of our theology that are beyond our ability to fully comprehend. But Jesus, who holds the entire world in his hands, one time needed his mommy to hold him in her hands. He learned. He learned language. He learned the Old Testament. He grew in wisdom and knowledge with God and man. He grew into a a fine young man. The second Adam. And this is why he is born. Truly man. He has a mission. He's been commissioned by his father to live in full obedience to all of God's commands as a representative of of his sheep. He's to live in full obedience to God's command, which he gave before the world began, which means he must die and he must rise again. If he'll fulfill all righteousness and and, and fulfill all of the commands that God has given him to do. This is why he is born a man. And as a fully perfect, obedient man... The father delights in him as a man. And don't you realize that this love, this love that Jesus has known from the father from all eternity past, the love he feels from the father rebounds back to the father in acts of obedience because he truly loves his father. He seeks to obey his father with every fiber of his being. So they're. They're caught in this reciprocal action of love that the father bestows his love on his son. And the son responds with loving obedience. The overflow of the father's love rebounds back in obedience from the son. He lives to please his father. To feel the father's face beam down upon him in delight. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. That is the smile and the beam of a parent over a child. My daughter is three months old, and every morning we wake up, and I pick her up, and my face beams with delight over her as I smile and I tickle her, and I make her smile and giggle back, and my face is shining with delight. This is what Jesus has experienced for all eternity from his Father. It's what he's experienced as a man. Jesus begins his earthly ministry. You hear these words. At crucial points in Jesus' ministry, you hear the affirmation of the love for the Son. 
When Jesus is baptized, before he goes to begin his earthly ministry, you hear the voice from heaven. Heaven opens, the voice comes, this is my son whom I delight or whom I am well pleased or whom I delight to love. Halfway through Jesus' ministry, you hear it again, don't you? At his transfiguration, you hear the same words. The Mount of Transfiguration, there's Moses, Elijah. The disciples are standing around. They say, what a wonderful thing this is. Let's build some tents. These are great prophets. And God's voice comes again. This is my son whom I am well pleased, whom I delight, or who I love to delight in. And so Jesus, living as the second Adam, perfectly obedient to the Father, the Father is delighting in the Son's obedience Don't you understand, Jesus is a true man, which means something crucial. We can never say, well, of course he obeyed. He's God. Of course God obeys the commands of the Father. This is the relationship they've always had. If that were the case, he's, he's he's not truly man. He is truly a man, and therefore this is not fatalism. Jesus... It doesn't sound right to you. I'm going to take you to the edge, okay? I'm going to take you right to the edge of heresy. Jesus could have failed because he's in every respect like you except without sin. If this were an automatic done deal because he is God and his godhood overrides his humanity, he's not your representative. But he's just like you except without sin. A fully obedient covenant head. Now, coming off of Jesus' baptism, he's driven into the wilderness. There are crucial moments in Jesus' life where I think all of the created world and all of the angels, I think they all stopped and they waited and watched because all eternity hangs in the balance. And one of them is right after his baptism. He's driven into the wilderness and he's tempted. So the first Adam is tempted in a garden, but here he is in the wilderness. Sin-ravaged environment, the wilderness, he's hungry, he's thirsty, he's tired, and here he is at the weakest point of his humanity, except for the night before he is crucified, Satan comes. And I think this is the greatest temptation he faces. He faces three. Satan comes to him in Matthew 4, and he tells him this. I summarize it for you. If you will worship me, I will give you all of the kingdoms of the entire earth. They'll be yours. It's if he's saying to Jesus, if you worship me, you can have what's rightfully yours. You can rule and reign. You can have it all. Bypass the cross, Jesus. Just bypass the cross. And I'll give you everything anyway. You can have it all without having to suffer in obedience to your father. And I think all of heaven waited that point and looked in anticipation but what does he do does does he cave does jesus cave like adam he doesn't he says be gone from me satan it is written you shall serve the lord your god alone he emerges from the wilderness victorious our our representative and then roughly Halfway through his ministry, he would hear that voice again, that voice of affirmation. You remember that? And he would be persecuted by these Pharisees, and he would face all these trials. But his greatest trial was yet to come. The night before his crucifixion, hours before his arrest, Jesus goes to a garden. Again, not a coincidence. God is drawing a picture for you, right? Here's the second Adam in a garden. Jesus, our representative in a garden. And he is under the most severe form of anxiety I think a human has ever experienced. He knows what's about to take place. He knows his death is imminent. But listen, he is not afraid to die. All right. Do you think Jesus is afraid of a Roman cross? You think he, if you think that that's what you think, you have to think Jesus is more of a coward than a soldier who will go and die for their country. Jesus is not afraid of that. Jesus is under such anxiety at this point that he's in that garden. His disciples have fallen asleep. His best friends can't even stay awake with him. He's sweating drops of blood. 
because he knows what will happen tomorrow. Is the face that's beamed with delight over his son will turn in, into, a, into a face of hatred and anger as Jesus experiences the total rejection of his father. For eternity past, eternity upon eternities, all he's known is the love and delight of the father. And the next day he will be totally smashed by the the hatred and the anger of the father towards sin. Jesus will take upon himself on that cross the sin of a billion times a billion sheep. We don't even know how many. The end of Revelation tells us from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, Jesus has died for a people. He's borne their sins. Billions of hells he will experience in a three-hour period as it goes dark. And the father's son, the father totally crushes his son for the sheep. And here it is. This is one of the defining moments of all of the story of history. And I think at that moment, as he is, is, he's there in that anguish and torment, he knows what's coming. You understand, he wants a way out. He doesn't want to experience that from his father. He's praying. He's sweating drops of blood. And so he does the only thing he, he knows to do. He appeals to the father's sovereignty. Father, all things are possible for you. Is there some other way? What does Jesus hear? Oh, he's, all, he's always heard of the delight of the Father. The beginning of his ministry, he heard the voice of the Father saying he loves the Son. In the middle of his ministry, he heard the voice of the Father. This is my beloved Son whom I delight. What does he hear when he needs to hear it most? He doesn't hear anything. He hears nothing. It's as if all of the created order is silent. The heavens have become an iron curtain. The silence of the Father is deafening. What will he do? What will he do? If he backs out, we're all lost. If he backs out, all of our eternities are lost. We're all lost and damned for all eternity. What will he do? He's our representative at that point. What did he do? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. <laughs> he's, he is our, he's our champion, isn't he? He's our, we would all have failed. We all would have left the garden and ran away cowards. But Jesus loves his father so much, even without hearing the voice of affirmation, he will submit himself to the will of the Father because he loves the Father. Incredible. Total silence. He will succeed where the first Adam failed. The first Adam brought sin and despair through his disobedience. The second Adam, through his obedience, crushes sin through his despair. And this is why the Father delights in him. He loves the Son. He is true man. And he is perfectly obedient. And thank God for him. That he's obedient on our behalf. Well, we've seen the directive of the Father, the delight of the Father. Now we see the dominion of the Son. And when I speak of dominion, I speak of his absolute authority that the Father has given him over his life. See, now, now we're on the other side of this coin. He is true man, but simultaneously he's true God. Jesus has absolute authority over his life. Okay? He actually controls his destiny. You think you control your destiny, don't you? But you're powerless to do what your will wants. How, how, how much have you wanted to have a better job? Well, if you were in control of your destiny, boom, better job. Want children? Struggle to have children? If you were sovereign, boom, you would have them. Well, here's Jesus, true man. He's true God. 
But the Father has given him absolute sovereignty over his own life. And that's what's in this passage that Jesus says, I have authority over my life, authority to lay it down, authority to take it up. Now, we understand what true authority is just from our everyday life. If it's real, it has to have power to do what it wants. Okay? So, it's football season. I I love football season. I know some of you do, too. I know you do. Some of you might be thinking that I need to hurry up so you can make it home to watch some games. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. God forgives you if that's what you're thinking about. But imagine you're at a high school football game, okay? Running back, they they run a toss play out uh, to the right. They're running it. He crosses the 50-yard line. You're sitting there. Here he comes, sweeping out. He's going to make a break. Just at the last second, the linebacker reaches out, and he grabs his face mask and flings him to the ground. And they blow the whistle. He doesn't make the first down. He doesn't get it. And then the guy in front of you, the guy that's sitting there in front of you, he's got popcorn all in his beard. He's, he, he's a little overweight, so his, his shirt doesn't even cover his belly. He begins to scream. He's like, face mask, what are you talking about? And so they, they go to set the... They're going to set up the line markers, and he doesn't have the first down. He's like, this is an atrocity. He jumps the fence, runs out on the field, grabs the whistle from the official, blows it, says face mask, move the chains, proceeds to mark off a 15-yard penalty and move the chains. Everyone would be standing around saying, what in the world are you, what are you doing? You don't have any authority to do that. It's not real authority. People like to pretend they have real authority, but, th- but they don't. Or imagine this. Imagine it's the State of the Union address, and here comes the president. He gives the State of the Union, and he stands there. He's getting ready to speak. And here comes a woman, just a random woman. She jumps up out of the, out of, out of the crowd, pushes the president aside, and says, Mr. President, I got this. She's dressed nice. She has on a pearl necklace. And she says, she looks in the camera, and she says, my fellow Americans... It has become abundantly clear to me that the Russians interfered with our election. Now, whether it was the Clintons or the Trump team, I'm not sure. What we know is the Clintons wanted to to find some dossier on the president so they could derail the election. But it's possible that Trump colluded with the Russians as well. I don't know which one, but here's all I know. The Russians, they, they have conspired to sabotage our electoral process, and therefore that's an act of war. I now command that the 82nd Airborne mobilize with the 1st Infantry Division. We're invading Russia. Here we go. Right? They would come up on stage. They would take her down. They, would put her, they might put her in a straitjacket. I don't know. They would cart her off. And we would all be going, what in the world are you doing? You have no authority to do anything. What are you doing? Jesus is not, he's not like that. He's true God, he's true man, which means he has all authority and power to do what he wants. When they come to arrest Jesus in the garden, after he prays, after he sets himself to be obedient to death, to obey the will of the Father, they come to arrest Jesus. One of Jesus' disciples, Peter, pulls out a sword, but he cuts off a guy's ear. Now, don't think he's just, you know, he's not like trying to shave his sideburns. He's trying to cut his head off. He's trying to lop this guy's head off, and he's not a good soldier, so he misses and cuts his ear off. Right? He's trying to kill him. And Jesus says, calm down now. Put that, put that back up. Put it up. Don't you know that I could call down legions of angels right now? If I, if I wanted to, I could call down legions of angels. Wipe everything out. Put it, put it away. He has real authority and power over his destiny. He could have done that, but he doesn't do it. No one makes Jesus die. No one makes him die, not even his own father. He does it willingly. Jesus' death was a total, willing, vicarious, and purposeful sacrifice. He could have done otherwise. He could have acted in his own self-interest. And it would have meant our total destruction. 
Yes, the whole thing was executed by lawless and murderous men who hated him and wanted him to die. But they didn't take Jesus' life away from him. He gave it up. When he was hanging on the cross and they were coming by and they were saying, Oh, Jesus, you healed other people. Heal yourself. Come down. Come down from the cross. Just come down. And they're laughing and the soldiers and everybody is having a good time as he's hanging there. Stark, naked, totally humiliated. Do you know he could have flexed his back and snapped that cross in half and jabbed that spike in that slanderer's mouth, called down 10,000 legions of angels, and crushed the whole city of Jerusalem? He could have done it. What does he do? He's hanging there, slander and insults. And he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This Jesus Jesus is incredible. He could have done otherwise, but he gave his life over. No one takes it from him. And then look also, he has authority not only to lay his life down, he's got authority to take his life back up. And we often think, and rightly so, that the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus conquering death and rising to a real bodily, uh, a real bodily resurrection. He's not floating around as some phantasm. He's actually resurrected and conquered death. We're right to think the Father did that because the Bible says that. We're also right to think that the Spirit did that because the Bible says that. But the Bible also says that he did that himself. This is a Trinitarian resurrection. We're a Trinitarian people, aren't we? Look what it says in Acts 2, 23 through 24. This Jesus, they're preaching Jesus now. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. That's the father Raising Jesus to life, but also the Spirit raises Jesus in Romans 1 4. And Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is vindicated, he's validated all his claims and his teaching, validated by his resurrection. The Spirit raised Christ. But also, notice in our passage, Jesus has authority over his own life to raise himself. From the dead. Jesus said to them also in John 2 19, if you remember, he tells them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, referring to the temple of his body. Remember that? The Son is willing to lay down his life in obedience. No one takes it from him. The Son raises his life in obedience because he has been given this authority from his Father. This is the incredible nature of the gospel, that it's big. It can only be called cosmic, can only be called the cosmic crucifixion. To know the mind of God as revealed to us, that we have seen today the directive of the Father, that he gave the Son a directive from eternity past to come and to die for a sinful, rebellious people, to die for his sheep. We also saw the delight of the Father. The Father delights in the Son. He loves his son. He's a perfectly obedient, true man. And we see the dominion of the son. He has all authority, authority over his life. He could have done otherwise, but for his sheep and because he loved his father, he lays down his life. No one takes it, but he also raises it back up again. What an incredible gospel! What an incredible God that we have. If you're here today and you've been a Christian for a while, I know that you probably can look at your life sometimes and you could say to yourself, how could, how could God, how can he really love me? Have I really done enough? Have I done enough for what Jesus has done for me? Maybe that this week you've failed to be a good parent. And you begin to perhaps, when you know that you have failed, you begin to fall into a performance-based look on your salvation. You think, God's not pleased with me. Am I really a Christian? 
or I have done this in my life, or I failed, and you know where you fa- you fail, and you begin to slip. You begin to slip into work salvation. You begin to think God does God doesn't really care for me. Look how look how much I messed up this week, Christian. Do you know that your salvation was planned from eternity past? Look what Jesus did. You could never match his obedience, no matter how hard you tried. Stop trying to earn God's favor, even, even though you profess salvation by grace alone through, through Christ, through faith. Stop trying to earn your salvation. You'll never match the obedience that Jesus performed in the garden. He performed it for you. If you're here today, I want you to rest in Christ. Rest secure in Christ. There's too much stuff for people to tell you what you ought to do. You ought to be doing this. You ought to be reading this. You ought to be doing this as a parent. You ought to be doing this as a child. Look to Christ. Christ's obedience flows out of the Father's love for him. Be changed by this love. You know now this cosmic crucifixion, how much the Father loves you. Let that love rebound back, not in because you have to do it to gain his acceptance, but because you love the Father. If you're here today and you aren't a Christian, think of the extreme, preposterous even. We could call it preposterous. That God loves a sinful man so much that he would become a man. How degrading. We're desensitized to it, those of us that are Christians. But God taking on human flesh, how degrading. remember talking to my Muslim neighbor, and that's what he said to me. He said, God would never do that. That's humiliating. And I said, now you're starting to understand. You can't understand the beauty of the gospel until you understand that. And that's what John is all about. That's what Philippians is all about. He humbled himself became a slave, took on the form of a slave, humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. The God of the universe so loved you, he hung naked, beaten, bloodied, mocked. An overflow of his love so that anyone could throw down their works and say, God loves me, I don't have to work my way to him. He just will accept me if I, if I turn from my rebellion and my sin and I believe that Jesus is the sent one from the Father. That's the beauty of the Christian gospel. You'll never be obedient enough. But if you're here today and you aren't a Christian, look at the links that the one and only true God went to to secure your reconciliation to him. He could give nothing better. He gave his son, his only son, who his, his, he loved to beam and delight over so that you could become a son or daughter of him. Be reconciled to God today. The Bible tells us that, that if we turn from our sins and trust Christ, if we come to him as, a, as one through a door, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone comes to me, they'll go in and out and find pasture. That is the greatness of life. That is Psalm 23, right? Everyone knows Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Read that psalm and think about the benefits. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, Jesus says in John 10. To have abundant life. To know God relationally. Not just intellectually. In Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. If you don't know him today, I pray that you would turn from your sin. Think of this gospel of what God has done to save you. And don't wait while today is today. Turn from your sin and come to Christ. He'll gladly receive you. He'll care for you as one cares for those that they love. I pray that you would today. Let's pray. Father, what you have done on our behalf is beyond our comprehension. God, we're able to understand what you have said, but it's so hard for us to comprehend it fully. How you could love us. We haven't loved you. We're selfish.
We have gone our own way. Each is every, all of us have gone our own way like sheep who go astray. That's what you tell us. Then you tell us that you've sent your son into this world. God, help us that are Christians to rest in this truth. And help us to live obediently, not, not because we think we've got to do this so that you would accept us, but help our obedience be a, a rebounding of your love back to yourself. Father, for those that aren't Christians that are here today, uh, whether they've never been around the Christian world or, God, more likely than not, they've grown up in Oklahoma. They probably heard the gospel 500 times. They probably know all about Jesus. Father, they don't know you. Lord, I pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, grant them repentance, regenerate them, bring them to life. That is our desire to see that. Thank you for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.